As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Hello and welcome to the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. We're taking a little break from our regular series with Alistair McGrath to bring you some bonus content from other thinkers. This show is the first of two episodes where we'll hear a panel of young people from Woking United Reformed Church in Surrey ask their questions to noted Narnia expert Michael Ward. It was recorded at Trinity College, Oxford University, and was chaired by Justin Brightley. Like Lewis himself, Michael is based at Oxford University, where he is a member of the Faculty of Theology and Religion. He also teaches online for the Master's Programme in Christian Apologetics at Houston Baptist University. If you're enjoying this podcast, please do rate and review it on whatever platform you're listening on so other people can find us too. And check out premierunbelievable.com for bonus content and a free book. Now it's time to hand over to Justin and Michael. Well, I'm here in Trinity College at Oxford University, and I'm surrounded by a whole bunch of young people from Woking United Reformed Church. We're here on a summer camp just outside Oxford, but we've come into Oxford for a look around the city and also for something very special here at Trinity College. We've got C.S. Lewis expert and scholar Michael Ward joining us to answer some of our questions. Can we have a round of applause? For... <laughs> and Michael is cheering for himself the loudest out of all of them. Um, it's great to uh, have you here, Michael. Thank you very much for saying yes. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Justin. Um, we're looking forward to the questions that our young people have come up with for this special edition of the C.S. Lewis podcast. And... Uh, I think we've got a range of people, some who have read Narnia, some who have not yet been introduced to it, but we're hoping to introduce them a bit more over the course of our youth camp. Um, But let's hear a bit about you, first of all, Michael. Um, Tell us about yourself. When did you first bump into the Chronicles of Narnia? I first came across Narnia when I was probably about your age. How old are you? Eleven. Yes, or a bit younger, maybe, Um, because I was still too young to read the Narnia books for myself, but my parents read them to me and to my two brothers. And my brothers and I used to jump into our parents' bed on a Sunday morning, and my mum would read us a chapter or two of the chronicle that we were working our way through. Uh, Then we would get up, have breakfast, go off to church, and that was quite a standard feature of my upbringing on Sundays. And when I was old enough to read Narnia for myself, I did so and then read Lewis's other fiction and his Christian apologetics and eventually worked my way through the whole of Lewis's output, including his scholarly writings. And I came here to Oxford, not to Trinity College, alas, but to another college where I studied English literature for my first degree and began 
for the first time properly to study C.S. Lewis from a more literary, critical and theological point of view. Wonderful. So tell us a little bit about how you then got into wanting to really spend a lot of your academic life looking at Lewis's work and, you know, what was it about it that, that made you so intrigued, Michael? Well, it was partly because of that undergraduate study that I, I did on C.S. Lewis. I wrote a, a short thesis on him about his depictions of evil in his fiction. And as a result of that, after I graduated, my old tutor said, would you like to come and give a one-off lecture on C.S. Lewis to the Department for Continuing Education? Mm. So I gave a one-off lecture, and then I was asked to give a short course of tuition for tutorials on C.S. Lewis to another Oxford student. And little by little, it, it grew and snowballed into, a, into something like a career, teaching and lecturing and writing on C.S. Lewis. And eventually, I, I moved into his, his old house, the Kilns, wow. uh, which is now owned by the C.S. Lewis Foundation and is a kind of residential study centre. And I lived there for three years as a kind of warden and had the privilege of, of sleeping in Lewis's old bedroom and, and studying in his old study and showing people around and, and generally taking care of the property. Um, so when it came time for me to do my PhD, um, the obvious choice for me as a subject to study was C.S. Lewis, because I was already quite expert in his writings. And that's what I chose to work on, because um, I've always been interested in the connection between English literature and theology, between stories and faith, between theology and imagination. That's the, the borderline, borderland that I like to colonize in my own work. And C.S. Lewis is absolutely perfect for that because he was an English literary critic, um, taught here at Oxford for 30 years, um, knew all about English literary history. But he was also, of course, a great writer of fiction and an immensely learned Christian uh, and a very successful Christian apologist. So C.S. Lewis is right in the sweet spot of my own interests, and, and that's why I've ended up um, focusing on him throughout my, mm. my entire working life. Yeah. Now, one thing that you're really well known for, Michael, and before we get to the questions, is you were the first person to really discover something that you think Lewis kind of hid away in the Narnia Chronicles. And it's, it, you talk all about it in a couple of books, a big one called Planet Narnia, and another one that you've got some copies here of, The Narnia Code. Can you just very briefly explain <laughs> the secret that you found Lewis had hidden away in his Narnia Chronicles? Yes, the Narnia Chronicles are mysterious, and lots of people have said this, that they seem to be a bit of a puzzle. There doesn't seem to be much of a, of a coherent scheme linking all seven books together. And various different theories have been suggested about what Lewis might really have been working to as his blueprint as his um, ordering principle, the seven deadly sins, the seven sacraments, any seven that people can think of basically has been suggested as a, as a, as a possible uh, explanation of this mystery. But the one seven which is all over Lewis's work and which nobody had really thought about until I did um, is the seven heavens, the seven planets of the old medieval view of the universe. C.S. Lewis was a medieval scholar, and he knew all about medieval cosmology. And the seven heavens, he described the seven planets as spiritual symbols of permanent value, which are especially worthwhile in our own generation. And he wrote all about them in his 
academic works, in his poetry and in his other fiction. But when he wrote Narnia, he wrote seven chronicles so that each chronicle would uh, embody and express the, the various qualities of, these, of one of these seven spiritual symbols. And that's his undergirding and overarching scheme for the chronicles. That explains why there are seven. That explains why they are rather various and different from each other. Um, and that's what I discovered halfway through my PhD research. And it's uh, the only original idea I've ever had in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and but, really Lewis had it to start Well, with. exactly. It, it was <laughs> Lewis's idea, just my idea to unearth it and discover it. Um, but it wasn't even an idea. It was just a sort of a bolt from the blue that hit me between the eyeballs one day when I was lying in bed uh, reading his long poem about the planets. And that was what tipped me off, that there was a connection between Jupiter, the planet Jupiter, and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And we might come on to that a yeah. bit later. Yeah. Great. Well, we will. Um, and one last thing. Not only are you a world-famous C.S. Lewis scholar, Michael, you've also starred in a few films as well, haven't you? Do you want to tell us about some of your <laughs> acting credits over I, the years? I, I think the word starred uh, <laughs> is a little bit inflated. Uh, <laughs> I have been an extra uh, in quite a few movies, the first, of, the first of which was actually the film about C.S. Lewis, Shadowlands the film with Anthony Hopkins and Deborah Winger, directed by Richard Attenborough, which was made here in Oxford in 1993. And Richard Attenborough needed about a 1,000 local people to be an extras in that movie, and so it was quite easy to get in. And uh, having got into that movie, my name then was on the books of the agency that was responsible for supplying extras to filmmakers whenever they came to Oxford or near Oxford, so every few months, this agency would ring me up and say, what are you doing next Monday and Tuesday? Do you want to be in a, an episode of Inspector Morse? Do you want to be in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet? Do you want to be in a James Bond movie? And that, that was the, uh, the, the real height of my career as a film extra, <laughs> uh, when I ended up in The World Is Not Enough, the Pierce Brosnan James Bond movie. And I even got to interact with James Bond. Wow. And I handed him a pair of X-ray spectacles, Whoa. without which he could not have saved the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But more recently, I have actually um, wonderfully, miraculously, managed to make the, the leap from extra to actor. Because there's a great gulf fixed between <laughs> those two um, departments of, of film performance. And... Um, there was a recent movie made about C.S. Lewis called The Most Reluctant Convert, directed by Norman Stone. And because Norman Stone had made a documentary about my book, Planet Narnia, um, we know each other, and he thought that I was capable of playing a small part in this movie, and he cast me as C.S. Lewis's vicar. Ah. Um, and I had to wear a wig, um, which was exciting because I looked myself in the mirror wearing this wig, and my mind went back 30 years to when I had hair. It was, <laughs> it was quite shocking. <laughs> and it's appropriate, because you are ordained in the Catholic Church. I am, yes. I'm an assistant parish priest at a parish here in Oxford. But I earn my living as an academic. Um, I teach in Oxford. I teach online for Houston Baptist University, and I, and I do a lot of speaking and writing on C.S. Lewis, and not just Lewis, actually, but Tolkien and Chesterton and, and that whole circle mm. of writers and thinkers. You guys have been thinking about C.S. Lewis and the Narnia stories, and so we're going to start off with some sort of basic 
FAQs about Narnia. Um, and Jack, I think you're going to start us off with, with a couple of questions. Do you want to ask your question? All right. So how many words are in the first Narnia book? Okay. And, and in fact, maybe all of the Narnia books. Yes. Well, th- thank you, uh, Justin. You, you gave me the heads up on, on this question because <laughs> the, these are not statistics I normally carry around in my head. <laughs> I had to look them up. Um, and the total number of words in all seven books is over 323,000. The shortest of the seven chronicles is the first, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which has about 37,000 words. And the longest of the chronicles is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which comes in at about 53,000 words. So between the shortest and the longest, it's, uh, there's, a, there's about 16,000 words difference between The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, but when you look at the books on, on a shelf altogether, they do look roughly the same length. It's not like Harry Potter. Yeah, where they get really, really long they, by yes. the end of them. I mean, yeah. J.K. Rowling also made her first one the shortest, but then they ballooned, uh, <laughs> especially by book four, got massively fat. Uh, the fourth, fifth, sixth, and so I happen to be rereading Harry Potter at the moment, as it happens, um, and and noting the difference between mm. Harry Potter and uh, C.S. Lewis, or between J.K. Rowling and C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis kept his his chronicles all roughly the same length. Uh, he was, I think, a, a bit bit more disciplined mm. maybe than Rowling. <laughs> Very good. Okay, I think you've got another question as well, yeah. Jack. How many times have you read Narnia? I cannot remember. <laughs> I, I did try to keep a, a tally of, of readings and rereadings, but eventually I lost track. Uh, it was really when I was doing my PhD because I was sort of reading them constantly and dipping in and out of them you know, every day. And, and so you, you couldn't really remember when, when you'd finished rereading it for the umpteenth time. So I, I, I don't know, but it must be, I don't know, 30, 50 times each. Wow. Okay, Nathan, what's your question? Uh, yeah, so how old, like, as a place or parallel universe is Narnia? Okay. Sort of thing? Interesting. Yes, question. it is an interesting question. Uh, and in a way, it's a bit misleading. It's a little bit like asking, how old is my great-great-grandmother? <laughs> because, of course, my great-great-grandmother is no longer alive. And Narnia, as a kingdom, as a magical realm, is, is no longer alive. It, it lived for... Um, 2,555 years, according to Narnian time, but it lived for just 49 years in our time. And I had to look this one up as well. Uh, But C.S. Lewis developed a a chronology of Narnian history. And Narnia was, was, according to this timeline, um, sung into existence by Aslan in the year, in our year, 1900. That's year one in Narnian history. And then 49 of our years went by. So in, uh, in 1949, the last battle happened, as it were, and Narnia was brought to an end. And that was the 2,555th year of Narnian history. But there's an interesting little sort of numerological um, set of thoughts going on behind these figures um, because 49, from 1900 to 1949, that's 49 years, and 49 is, of course, 7 times 7, 
And seven, of course, is a really significant number for the Narnia Chronicles. Not only are there seven books, but there are you know, seven lost lords in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There are seven friends of Narnia at the end of the last battle. Seven is a really significant number throughout the Chronicles. And then if you look at the number 2,555, which is the entire duration of Narnian history, um, you arrive at that if you multiply seven by... Anybody here good at maths? Multiply seven by 365 which is the number of days in our years, and that gives you 2555. So it's not just accidental. There's some logic behind that, that, those figures. How interesting. Wow. (laughs) Who knew? Right. Uh, I've got a question about the size of Narnia from someone. Who's got that one? Okay. How big is the land of Narnia? (laughs) Mm -hmm. How big is the land of Narnia? Well, this is another one I had to look up. (laughs) <laughs> I'm very glad you gave me a heads up on this. <laughs> um, and I haven't actually independently verified this. I, <laughs> I haven't actually gone and looked at the maps. But Mr. Google <laughs> tells me that um, the, the maps developed by Pauline Baines, who did the illustrations for the Narnia Chronicles, in, in consultation with C.S. Lewis, that those maps indicate that Narnia, the mainland of Narnia is... 150 miles west to east, or east to west, and it's about 100 miles north to south. So that gives you a a sort of rough rectangular shape. Um, But, of course, the Narnian kingdom extends beyond that mainland and includes the Lone Islands and and other, you know, offshore, uh, you know, realms and principalities or whatever they're called, Um, so the, the geographical ex- extent of it out into the eastern ocean and to the eastern edge of the world uh, would enlarge it considerably. But I, I don't know what those figures are, I'm afraid. But the bit of land might only be the size of a, a large county or something? I don't yes, know. yeah, 150 miles by 100 miles. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Right. OK, thank you very much. OK, so our next question comes from Amelia. How many different ways are there to Narnia? Right, well, can you, can you uh, write them down as I list them out for you? Because I haven't actually worked out the number. But okay. we'll, we, we can go through the Chronicles quickly together. Okay. So the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you get into Narnia through the wardrobe. In Prince Caspian, you get into Narnia um, because Susan's horn is blown by, uh, by someone in Narnia, and that summons you out of an English railway station, sucks you into Narnia. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of Prince Caspian, we're told that there's another way into Narnia through, a, through a, a, a crack in a cave in a South Sea island. And that's how the Telmarines blundered into Narnia many years before. And some of them go back through that exit back into their South Sea island. It's a little bit like the, the, island, the Pitcairn Islands, I always think of them, uh, you know, like the Mutiny on the Bounty people. Um, so there are two entrances into Narnia in Prince Caspian. In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I'm working through the books in the order of their publication. In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the, the entrance is through a painting, a painting of a Narnian ship, which suddenly enlarges, and the children find themselves in the sea next to this ship, which turns out to be the Dawn Treader. In The Silver Chair, uh, Eustace and Jill find their way into Narnia through a door in a wall at the edge of their school campus. 
It's a door which usually opens onto a heathland, but on this occasion it opens into Aslan's country, and that's how they get in on that occasion. In The Horse and His Boy, there's no traffic between our world and Narnia. So there's no doorway. And, and that's because it's set while the Pevensies are ruling as kings and queens. That's right, Narnia, yes, it's it? a subset. The Horse and His Boy is a subset of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Mm. So there's no... Uh, interplay between our world and Narnia in that book. That brings us to The Magician's Nephew, uh, and there the, it's the magic rings that Uncle Andrew has made, which, when you put them on, uh, summon you to, well, summon you outwards. If, when you put on the, is it the yellow rings? And when you put on the green rings, you're summoned back, or the other way around, so I can never remember. <laughs> um, so it's magic rings in The Magician's Nephew, and then in the last battle, um... You remember uh, King Tyrion desperately prays for help, and then he's plunged into a dream, and he sees the, the friends of Narnia in this world, and he, uh, and he can't make himself heard, but the children here can see him, and they realize that something must be going amiss in Narnia, and that he's desperately needing their help. So they then find a, they, they, they go to the, the place where the rings were buried under the, the tree at the end of, of Magician's Nephew, and they try to dig them up, and they pretend to be workmen. And, and then they're on a train, and the train crashes, and they find themselves in Narnia. Um, so there it's a bit mysterious, whether it's the rings or the train crash or just Aslan's summons or the prayer of King Tyrion. It's a bit unclear what is actually bringing them to Narnia. Um, so that, let's just sum, sum all those, up, those, those options into one for last battle. And that gives us how many? Seven. Yeah, because ah. there are no, no entrances in The Horse and His Boy, but there are two entrances in Prince Caspian. Yeah. And did, did you know that that was going to be another seven number? I didn't, no, actually. No, so thank you. There you go. Yeah. We might have just discovered another little, <laughs> another little C.S. Lewis Easter egg in the, in the Narnia stories. Okay. We now have another question from Grace. Why were the Pevensies selected to go into Narnia? Mm. Yeah, and I wonder, if it hadn't been them, would anyone mm. who had turned up at that wardrobe have, have, mm. have found their way in? Well, I think this is an unanswerable question. Because we're not told why they were selected. Uh, they just are. Um, now, we could sort of work back from what happens to them and, and deduce some reasons that might have been in play, such as the fact that there are four Pevensies, uh, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and there are four thrones at Care Paravel, which need to be filled by sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, so presumably it would only, uh, only a quartet of children could ever have got in. Um, but whether it could have been another foursome of children, we're not told. Um, mm -hmm. So that's just unanswerable. We, we, we can't know the answer to that. But, but clearly there had to be four of them. Yeah, And that's why, of course, the witch wants to kill Edmund. Mm -hmm. Because if she can slit his throat and prevent him from becoming a king of Narnia, then the prophecy won't be fulfilled... And she, the witch, will be able to go on reigning in Narnia and maintaining her tyranny forever. Okay. So I think the number four is really significant there. 
Thank you for joining us on the C.S. Lewis podcast. We're going to take a break here, but do come back next time as we continue to hear the questions that our panel of young people put to Michael Ward about the Narnia Chronicles, such as can people from Narnia enter our world? How did the witch get power over Narnia? And is Narnia something C.S. Lewis experienced as a child? For more from the show and to register for bonus content, a free ebook and our regular updates, visit premierunbelievable.com. See you next time.